I guess the title of my talk would be Ecclesia and Unity. Those are two themes that kept coming up in my study. And um, about 9.30 last night, I really changed the whole order of what I was going to teach today. I was going to teach on all the different metaphors that are used in the New Testament to describe the church. Off the top of your head, we know them, right? The body, the temple, the priesthood of believers. We are like, um, we're, we're vines, we're grafted into the vine of Christ. Um, there's others. So there's a lot of metaphors, and if you, if you study it, maybe at some point we could do that in detail. You really get a, a really neat perspective on what the church really is when you combine all the different metaphors. But really what kept coming, coming up, coming up, coming up, and probably because my mind is focused on this area, but I think, too, it's because it is a major theme in the Bible when it talks about the church. It's unity in the church. It's so powerful and it's so prevalent in the New Testament, and we're going to get into that today sort of in the hopefully second half of the talk. But by way of introduction, by the way, you can interrupt me at any time. I like being interrupted and having a, a sort of a dialogue, but I thought I'd get us started by a uh, Bible quiz for you guys. I'm just going to throw, throw out questions. It's a pop quiz, and uh, just to sort of orient us. Well, it's open book, but if you have one of those uh, software programs, you can't use that because you'll get some of these answers. You really will. That, that's how I got some of these questions was from my software program. And Anyway, so, um, so this is just really to orient us to the word church as it's used in the New Testament. Really, the word ekklesia, which I'll get into in a minute, which is the Greek word that is translated church pretty much in all your Bibles all the time. So, 27 books in the New Testament. How many times do you think the word church is used? Just a wild guess. This is a hard one. No one's probably going to get it. Zero. Any idea? Not zero. <laughs> the word church is used a lot in the New Testament. Almost always when you see church, it is a translation of that word ekklesia. So another way to say it, how many times is ekklesia, the Greek term, used in the New Testament? 77. Good guess. 77. Anybody else? 100. Better guess. 100. 78. No, it's, 100 and, it's 114. 114 times. So just so you know, it, it's, it's used a lot, right? There's a lot to study about the church. Um, how many times is that word used in the New Testament Gospels? Do you think? The word ecclesia, church. How many times is it used in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Out of the 114 times in the whole New Testament, how many times is it in the Gospels? That's a good guess. Zero, huh? It's in Acts a couple times. Acts a couple times, all right. Anybody else? Four is a good guess. Uh, two, actually, isn't that? I was impressed by that. I thought it would be used a lot. And one of them we know we're going to study a lot today, which is Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. That's one time. And the other time is, uh, they're both in Matthew, by the way, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. The second time is Matthew 18, where it says, if you have a, a um, grievance, against, grievance against a brother, we know Matthew 18. They don't listen to you, then you take it to the church. That's the second time it's used. So I was amazed by that. But it sort of helps orient you to the church, right? Because it's really not mentioned, that word, in the Gospels. But what book does it really erupt? Acts. So, 
That's neat. How many times do you guys think it's used in Acts? 112. No, 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 no. <laughs> this, is, this is a good exercise. No, it's 23. So I'm doing this just to orient you as to how this is distributed throughout the uh, New Testament. Um, almost all the times in Acts, ecclesia is translated church. Sometimes it's translated congregation or assembly. And I do want to just look at that briefly because um, in Acts 19, in Ephesus, you remember the riot there? I just want to point this out to you because um, Acts 19.32, I just want to point it out where it says... Well, I'll start at 31. Some of the, also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of this sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater, talking to Paul. Don't go in there, there's a riot going on. So then some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly. That's the word ecclesia, assembly, is translated. The assembly, the group of people, was in confusion. And the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Skip down to verse 39, it says, So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint... Um, the courts are in session and proconsuls are, I'm sorry, that's 38, are available, 39. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. That's ecclesia, assembly. And then verse 41, after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Those are really the three main times in the New Testament this word is translated to not refer to Christians, basically. And I'll use the word Christians loosely because we're going to have two different definitions of the church with Christians, right? You have the true Christians that only God knows. And you have those calling themselves Christians and that are gathering. So really, that's the only, those are the only three times it's used in the New Testament to not refer to a body of believers. Uh, if you flip back a few pages to Acts 7.38, and I will not be able to delve into this issue too much, but this is interesting. This is when uh, Stephen gives his sermon. Um, and this would be a whole study on its own, because it is too fascinating when you want to figure out in our minds what was the church in the Old Testament time, Israel, right? That's the gathering of God's people is Israel in the Old Testament. And there's a not-so-subtle debate among believers. How do we reconcile the church and its separation from Israel? How different are they? How similar are it's, it's a difficult topic and one that I'm not able to broach today. But this is an interesting verse in Acts 7.38. Uh, this is the one, and, and Stephen's talking about Israel. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together, talking about Moses with the people, with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. That word congregation is ecclesia. So uh, Stephen used the word of a gathering of believers to refer to uh, the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Other than that, that word is going to be translated as church. Okay, a few more questions for you. Um, the word's used five times in Romans. Uh, what book do you think, second to Acts, has that word in it the most? It's a tie for second? No, it's not. There is a second. It's 1 Corinthians. 
First Corinthians uses this word 22 times, and uh, there's a chapter in the New Testament that has the highest density of the use of that word, and I bet you no one can get this. That one actually is uh, a tie. So what, what do you think that word's used? I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> that that's, not, that's too big of a hint. Oh, you are so close. It's 1 Corinthians 14, which is another study I want to do because that's the, the, the chapter on tongues, right? Speaking in tongues, but man, I was so blessed. If you, if you look at that chapter and you see how often the word church is used, it's not about tongues, actually. That chapter is about the unity of the church. It is really about the unity. You, you read through it and you see how Paul actually contrasts the people who are using tongues inappropriately. And he keeps saying, it doesn't edify the church as much as prophecy and telling other people and interpreting the tongues. So, so it's really all about unity. We might get to it at the end if we have time to read through it. It's, it's, I was blessed a lot to appreciate that and read through it. So 1 Corinthians 14, the word church is used nine times. It's also used nine times in Revelation chapter 2. Of course, to the church, to the church, to the church in Ephesus and Revelation, that word's used. So that kind of helps orient you. Ekklesia is the Greek word. It's a combination of two different words in Greek, ek and klesis, so which means uh, ek is out of, and the second half is a calling. So it's a calling out. It's basically a, a Greek phrase which says, this is a calling out, this is a separate group of people. This is an assembly. This is a congregation. This is a group of people. But in the New Testament, because you have context, pretty much it's, it's clear that what they're speaking of is a called out group of believers in Jesus Christ. That's, that's how it's used in the New Testament almost always. And then we're going to talk throughout the lesson today about the different types of believers. Like I mentioned before, the the true believers only God knows versus those calling themselves Christians. Um, so, I think that, that... Any questions about that word and how it's used? Tim, going back to that, I can't remember the verse now, but Old Testament and Moses. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you say those are believers? They're not believers in Christ. That's a good question, hard to answer for me. So I would say, based on what is it's Acts seven thirty eight. Um, I think Stephen is referring to believers. That's why he uses that word, the congregation, the the church. He's using a Greek word to describe this congregation of Jewish people. Um, but I can't be firm on that because we know in the Old Testament, many of the Jews, most of them it seems like, were really not faithful people. So I can't be certain on that. That's why I said with the asterisks, it's an interesting verse and it would be great to study it and, and go through the different ways to uh, interpret it, but I can't give a real satisfactory firm answer on that. Any other questions? Okay, so in the New Testament also, we know that there is a lot of other sections of Scripture that describe the church, but you don't use the word the church. And Ephesians 4 is a great example. I would like you to flip there. 
it's really one of the these high watermark chapters describing believers. Um, but the word church is never used, but we understand it to describe the church. Let's read a, f- a few verses here. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. So Paul's describing our duty as the Christians, and all of us together as a church have to do this. Uh, with, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all. Okay? Pretty clear in Paul's mind that believers are united in in all these things. One Father, one God, one body, one spirit, one hope. We're united, right? All true believers have that. Um, Down in verse 11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. That's our job as all individual members of this body is to equip the saints for the building up of each other. Not really. In a sense, I mean, in a selfish way. He says in the building up of the body of Christ. This is a true, mystical, spiritual truth. We, we are together as these true believers to build up the body of Christ. Great chapter to keep in mind as a description of the church, even though the word church is not used there. Of course, uh, God builds his church. Oh, another trivia. In Acts, where is the word church first used? Easy one, right? What chapter? Two, 44, right? Any one of the guesses? You're both wrong. <laughs> this is great trivia. It's actually chapter 5, which I find also so interesting. But we'll get there in a minute. Acts chapter 2, I'll start at verse 40. Um, and this is just to make the point, again, I'm trying to orient us to what the true church really is, that God builds his church. God builds it, right? We don't build it. God is the one building his church. Acts 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day, about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So you see, even in the early church, this, this whole unity, it just from day one, from the first second, they, they are unified. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing in the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the point there is it's the Lord who's adding it. He builds his true church. Okay, back to Acts. 
I would have said chapter 2, too. Obviously, the first place we're going to hear of the church, the ecclesia, is in Acts 2, Pentecost. That's when the church starts. And that's what my title says, A Vital Church Grows. Well, there you go. So the, <laughs> Right. It's true. But I'm not trying to admit any... I don't know how to interpret this, but it's just interesting to me that the first time the word is used is actually in Acts chapter 5, verse 11. And before you flip there, who knows what happens in Acts 5? Jana, you can't answer because you've been listening to my... Acts 5. I thought you told me. I think I remembered it. It's Ananias and Sapphira. Remember in the... Um, So there's, there's discipline in the church. The first real church discipline, chapter 5, and it says, uh, and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. So the first time we see that word is great fear among the church. And if you read Acts and study it, you see from there on the church grows a lot. It's blessed. Flip over to the next time after chapter 738, after Stephen's sermon where he uses the word ecclesia. This is also interesting. The next time you see the word used is in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, with, with Paul, Paul the evil one, Paul who is breathing death against the Christians. And it says in 8, verse 1, Saul, after Stephen dies, was in hearty agreement uh, with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church, that's a word, in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Next time the word is used, chapter 9, verse 31. And again, just point of interest. Chapter 8, Paul breathing threats against the church. It's scattered. Chapter 9, 31. Um, after Saul, Paul saved. He starts to preach Christ. Uh, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up. And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So that's the introduction of that word in the book of Acts. Don't you think that's interesting? How, anyway, I, th- I think that's interesting. It's not used till chapter 5. And then back to back, chapter 8, Paul persecuting the church. Chapter 9 is being built up. Okay. So let's dig down a little bit into the two distinctions of the invisible church versus the visible church. So the invisible church is the church as God sees it. We don't know. There are professed believers who may not be believers. There are wolves among the sheep, right? There's tares among the wheat. So, But the invisible church from all time is what the Lord sees. And I think that's what... Um, in Matthew 16, verse 18, when Jesus talks to Peter, he says, On you, I'll, I'll build this church um, by calling people to himself. That, that's the sense we're to interpret that. I say to you also that you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower us. So he's talking about the, the eternal, universal church. Unless you ask the Catholics, which we will get into this verse actually in a minute because it's interesting. So th- this is, this is a, uh, a watershed verse dividing, really, Roman Catholicism from uh, Protestant uh, churches. Um, 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows those who are his. 
Okay, that's the same sense of what we're talking about. John 10, where Jesus talks about being the shepherd and the flock and the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. Again, another example of the invisible church. Ephesians chapter 1, 22, He put all things under His feet and gave Him, talking about Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. We have to interpret that as not just a local body of Ephesians, but it's every, every believer. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the universal, eternal people of God. Okay, so there's that sense, and I think we all agree that sometimes... When that word's used, that's what it's referring to. Other times, it just refers to this visible collection of people. And you can see that a lot in the New Testament. Actually, Matthew 18, I think that's what he's referring to. You know, if they don't listen to you, take it to the church. So you're taking it to the local people that call themselves believers. A good definition of the visible church is actually the church as Christians on earth see it. That's a good definition. So if you have a non-Christian and say, oh, that church over there, it may not really be a church because a non-believer calls something a church, it's not a church. But I think a good definition would be the church on earth, the visible church, is that group of people who Christians say is a church. The church in Corinth, the church in, churches in Galatia, the church in Thessalonica, the church in your house, um, the, the, the people's houses where the church, early church met. Those are the visible, that's the visible church. Any questions about that? All right, so I'd like to spend a few minutes on Matthew 16. And I'll start at uh, verse 13. And this is the scene where Jesus tells Peter he'll be, he'll be the rock. Uh, Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, a great verse before the next verse. Again, God calls his people. God the Father revealed that to Peter. He didn't figure it out on his own. He, he was called by God to know that. I, say, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So it's a uh, well-known verse, well-known truth that we know that Peter was the leader of the early church, and it's a controversial verse because there's different ways to interpret it. So I'll tell you how I think this what I think it's really saying, 
and uh, I'd like to hear from you because I know there's different ways that different people have interpreted this. So I'll get my version out first, and then we'll hear from you guys to see if you agree or disagree. So first of all, just looking at the language, well, Peter was Simon, right? And in John, when he's called, it says Simon, who Jesus called Peter. So early on, when Peter was called, it seems Jesus gave him a new name. He said, no, you're Peter. You're no longer Simon. And this is something I didn't know. Peter is not a name for anybody in the known world prior to this time. It's not a, it's not a Greek name. It's not a known to be, it means rock. Petros is masculine for Petros. A-S. Petras means stone or rock. So Jesus, it seems like, made up a name for Peter. Simon, you are called rock. That, that's what he did. So it's, it's interesting. Before that, it wasn't a name. It's not like, Simon, you're called Tim, which is a known name. He said, Simon, you're called rock. So it's beautiful in a way when you get to this verse. So I'm just imagining, and this is my own editing, but you just wonder for, for those year or two, why did he name me Rock? You know, what's, why, why did he name me Rock? Why, what's the significance of that? Huh? Might throw me in the sea or something. Maybe I'm the hard-headed or maybe, you know, I don't know. This, but I think it's interesting to consider Jesus knew this was coming. And we'll get into what Rock really means, I think. So anyway, so Petros is Rock. Masculine for Petras. Uh, and John actually, if you read it, it's John 1, 20s somewhere. He says, uh, actually, Peter, you're called Cephas. So Cephas is a transliteration of an Aramaic word, which means rock, kipha. Okay, so it's really just a language issue. So Jesus spoke in Aramaic, so he probably said Cephas, but the Greek translation is Petras. Are you with me? So, um, but the point is, he, he called him a rock. Uh, Cephas or Peter. Uh, Jesus chose his name. Okay? And I think here we learn why he chose the name. Because he's going to tell him, you're the rock. And on this rock, I'll build my church. Now, why do you think he used the image of a rock? I think because he was also teaching other things about, there's allusions to stones on this stone, the temple stones, right? He'd also preached that he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. So I think this has partly, this is partly the reason. The new temple, which is another um, metaphor used in the New Testament to describe the church, the new temple is not, Jesus was not talking at that point about a physical temple. He's talking about the people, the church. And that temple has a rock. The cornerstone is Christ, right? And Peter's another one. And Peter's the main one for the early church. He's, he is the leader of the new church. You just read through Acts chapter 10 and 15. It's very clear he's established as the rock of the new church. So I think he's just clearly um, illustrating to Peter this transition from the old to the new, what the new church is going to be. I'm the chief cornerstone. The temple is gone. The new temple is people, the church. You're a rock, Peter, and you're the one I'm going to build my church on. Um, any controversy there? I, I think... Uh, well, I guess it depends on... Um, I heard he would call him Peter to challenge him. And yeah. Sometimes he called him Simon. 
sometimes he called him Peter to, to challenge him, mm -hmm. to be more like a rock, to be more solid. <coughs> yep. But also, um, aren't there two different words, Petra and Petro? One's, yeah. One's like a mountain and one's like a... One's a bigger rock. Pebble. Yeah. Right. So... I didn't go that far. I've read those to say there's a, there's a distinction between a big rock and a small rock. Um, my take on it is he just using a masculine version of the Petras. Go ahead. If you dig into the Greek, it's the same base word. Yep. The word Petros, which is what he called Peter, means small stone or pebble or stone. Mm -hmm. The word Petra, where, he, where the translators translated as rock, it means foundational stone. Uh -huh. So there's actually two separate Greek words. One commentator says that uh, Jesus made a play on words to yeah. demonstrate, Peter, you're a rock, but I'm building my church on me, the uh -huh. foundation stone. Right. Because I am Thank a you. cornerstone. Yeah. The cornerstone and the foundation stone would be the same thing, right? Uh, well, yeah. Because yeah. Jesus said, I am the cornerstone. Right. Yeah, and my church is built on the cornerstone. Yeah, thank you. That may be a, a better way of saying sort of. Yeah, yeah thank you. Uh, you one know, commentator I've read says that it, Jesus actually does a play on words there. Yeah, to to say yes, Peter, you're a rock. You're the rock of my these group of men. Yep, the early I'm church. Actually, building my church on me. Yeah, which is the foundation cornerstone. Great. Yes, yeah. I think the Catholics believe that it was a handing off of power. You may be getting to that. I'm going to get, I was just going to mention okay. that. Yeah, but you can go ahead. So, yeah, the Catholics interpret this as, as a, a really a succession through the bishop system from Peter. And the, the only people through the succession of Peter and who he appointed, etc., is the church. So Peter's the rock of the church. He's the foundation of the church. The church is built on Peter and the succession of uh, appointed priests, really, since then. That's what the Catholics... I wonder when they... Peter was married, you know, he was saying how they got off of that. But. That was a political, th I, I can't remember the details. You, you, the marriage thing, I think it was around 1100. Yeah, I think so too, a thousand years later. Telling the priest not to get married, because they were married for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the early church, they were married. Yeah. The early church, Peter people, a lot of them were married. married. Yeah, and they, I think they wanted to be more like the monks. And so at some point in Catholic history, Roman Catholic history, they decided, well, we're not going to... Uh, we want to be more like monks. We don't want y'all to marry anymore. Yep. Don't know. Some people say it's on the just the statement, the fact that he said, "You are the Son of the Living God. You are the Christ." Yeah. That it's on that powerful statement. I've also heard that it was because Jesus said that at Caesarea Philippi, and this came from the Ray Vanderland. If you've ever done any of the, so the world may know, but uh -uh. that they were at Caesarea Philippi, and there were some a lot of mountainous areas there where many of the pagan gods they had niches cut into the mountains of all the pagan gods, and Jesus was saying, you know, I am the rock, yeah. not this. This isn't what it's about here, and I will be victorious over all demonic control on the earth. Mm -hmm. Great. I think that just amplifies the truth here. Yep. Thank you. Um, other people have said that Jesus refer is referring to his faith. And upon the rock is really referring to the faith of people to believe. Because Peter had faith that Jesus was the Son of God. He said it here. And Jesus is saying, basically, on that faith, I'll build my church. 
that's one interpretation. The commentators I read doesn't seem very strong. That could be it because, I guess, the language and the grammar that's used. And it's, it's like it's a direct answer to Peter. Peter says, you are the Christ. And he says, you are the rock. It seems more natural that he's directly speaking to Peter, not to his faith. But it would also be true that faith is a foundational need for the church. Um, I think that's I don't know what Barjona is Simon's his real name son of yeah thank you son of Jonah thank you that's his proper name yeah so you Simon are now Peter uh, yeah so the, it's not a line of succession like the, the Catholic Church believes we don't think at all and I, Calvin had a good quote about this he said quote and, and this this brings out the understanding of the invisible church versus the visible church. The true believers who will follow Christ, who will stick to the Bible, adhere to it, all that, versus the um, visible church, which may not be a true church. So Calvin said, of course, and he was in the crosshairs of this fight, he started this division, of course, between Protestants and Catholics. He said, this pretense of succession is vain unless their descendants conserve safe and uncorrupted the truth of Christ, which they have received at their Father's hands and abide in it. I think it's a good rebuttal to the idea that the Catholic Church has ownership on the church. And Calvin points out that just like Caiaphas was descended from Aaron, right? And Caiaphas, the high priest, evil man, who is responsible for Jesus' death, he was descended from Aaron. You're Jewish, right? So just like that, he said, you, um, you can't say that the Roman Catholic Church can claim Peter as their successor. I think that's a really neat point. I never thought of it. And then the next Catholic, I mean, he goes on, it like, appears to be giving him authority to make decisions on earth, mm-hmm. to be honored in heaven, Arabic, you know. Yeah, I think he talks about the authority he has in, in the next chapter, verse chapter 18 and verse 18, he says the same thing again. I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Okay. I'll so, throw in there the keys of the kingdom. So you got, you're the rock. Mm-hmm. Keys of the kingdom. Binding those. Yeah. Catholics are taking all three of those and running with it. Right. Okay, so that, there's... The, the main point, though, is Jesus here is referring to a universal church of all God's true people. I don't think the word Catholic's ever found in the Bible, right? Um, it means universal, but do they use that? I think some translations have the word Catholic as a translation of the word universal, maybe a King James or something. I don't know for sure. It's in the creeds. Yeah, I know it's in the our creeds, yeah. Yep. But I think it's a synonym for universal church, and it's used properly in some context. Okay. What time do we leave here? Ten. So I, I do need to touch on the main thrust of what I prepared for. 
this is all sort of warm up. Uh, yeah, maybe. But I, but I, I think I really want to get into it. We, it's five minutes to ten. We don't start church till ten thirty. So maybe another fifteen minutes we'll get into the unity, and maybe we could pick up next week because, uh, especially pertaining to what we're going through with the church, we have to, we have to do this. So um, unity is is a strong emphasis of unity in the church in the New Testament. It is overwhelming, actually, um, to me, as I've studied it in the last couple of weeks. So many verses, so many chapters that drive this point home. And I'm actually, maybe for today, I'll just end up reading a lot of the, the sections that address this. Um, and maybe it'll pierce your heart like it has mine, applying it to our situation. Um, so, strong emphasis. It starts, one verse, or the image you see early on is in John chapter 10, where Jesus talks about being a shepherd of his flock. My people hear my voice. I am the shepherd. They follow me. We're together, right? That's one area. I'm not going to go there and read that whole chapter, but it's a great reference for you. Um, John chapter 17, verse 20. This again. Let me read this for you. This is a prayer for his disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those, that's us and everybody else, who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. Again, let's look at this. How Over and over and over again, it's this word one, 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 unified, one. They'll all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. They also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you've loved me. So Jesus is praying so earnestly here that the world is going to see his body visibly as one. Right? That is paramount. That is key. That we are united. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think I put this in my category of key verses for describing the church. It's really just Paul's introduction to the Corinthians, but... If you go through it, it is a really beautiful description of the church. He says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brothers, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Okay, so here we have, to the local body of people calling themselves a church at Corinth. To you people. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling. And now here, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord, and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think even in his introduction there to this book, which, by the way, has, a, it has the most use of that word, ecclesia, I say not the most, second most, to Acts. Uh, that introduction is, is really poignant and helpful. Uh, in that same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, down to verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Ephesians chapter 4. We've already read that. Um, I'd like to read it again, actually, verses 1 through 7. 
just to point out a couple things. Ephesians 1, or I'm sorry, Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that little phrase there, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, uh, should motivate us in all we do in the church. We should be eager, and that word eager really means to make a very earnest, very strong, very prompt effort. Do your best. Be diligent. Be really diligent. Labor. Study. Do your best to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So, I just say it. We need to use that now in our church if, with this thing that's happened. We, 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 uh, the Lord calls us to be eager to maintain unity of the Spirit. There's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then I'll skip down to verse 12 again of chapter 4. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'll read a few more verses. Philippians 2, 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full, in full accord and of one mind. So the question I have for the class uh, on the heels of that Philippians 2, 2 verse about where he tells them, complete my joy, be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. It's almost a command. It's stronger than an urge. He's like, do this. So how can he do that? What is his underlying premise to that statement? When he tells them, do this, be united, what's the underlying premise of that admonition? We're all to have the mind of Christ. Right. There's a spiritual reality behind it. There is a spiritual reality which, is, which Paul knows we are one body, right? So we can do it. We are already united spiritually. The true believers are already united. He just kind of a reminder combined with a command. So there is one body. Christ will build his church and Paul's reminding them. Christ prayed for it. Keep them in one, Lord. So we know that Jesus' prayers are going to be answered. I'd like to, we've got a few minutes, I'm going to read uh, the most powerful verses to me. And I, 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 Next week, can I continue? Yes. We'll maybe pick up on this, but uh, it's so powerful, I actually wept as I was reading it out loud to my wife last night. So, crying is a normal emotion, don't get scared by it. <laughs> I've done it before in front, but I'll try not to do it because I'm a man and all, but it... it <laughs> It, it is powerful. It really touches my heart to read this. But So read with me. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, it, it's just wonderful. And I think it should motivate us to, um, as we move forward here. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you 
that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works in all things and all persons. But each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Right? Pretty clear. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now, there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret do they? Do you get his point? Do they? We're not all this. We're not all that. We're all different. We're all different. And then he, this the crescendo, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. I'll show you a more excellent way, right? And then what's next? Chapter 13. Love. Love, love. So I leave you with this because you can tell this whole thing is heavy. 
on my heart. If we're church, we love each other. If someone has done something wrong, I don't even know the details of what's going on. You probably don't either. You know some because I know how the grapevine works. But we love each other. We build each other up. If someone has made a mistake or not or there's miscommunication, all that is somewhat trivial compared to this. We love each other. We build each other up. We are patient. So that's that. that that's the lesson. I, I encourage our class and really our church. Let's not be naive and pretend this doesn't ever happen, but let's just love each other and be open and um, pray and do that. By the way, by the way, it's required for this class to go to the next prayer meeting. We went to the prayer meeting last Sunday. We're so blessed. I think it's one of the most blessed things I've done in 10 years here. Honestly, it was so blessed to go there and to break off into little groups and pray. I got to know more about people that just prayed for five minutes in my group than I've known about them in 10 years. It is so unifying to pray with, with a brother, just to hear their heart, and you just know them better. So I'm, I'm encouraging everyone next, next month uh, to go with us, and we on, can participate. On that note, participate. a great book <clears throat> my wife and I are reading together uh, on prayer by H.B. Charles. Uh, uh-huh. I think the iBooks was $4.99. You know, we read a chapter together each night. Mm-hmm. On top, you know, we started it Monday night because we were so blessed by the thing Sunday yeah. night mm-hmm. that we went camping Monday and we started reading that book, uh, you know, together. And it's been really neat to, mm-hmm. um, you know, just to kind of not kickstart, but maybe to reignite, mm-hmm. you know, fan the flame, as Paul yeah. told Timothy, yep. um, in, in the area of prayer. So, mm-hmm. H.B. Charles. Uh, I don't know, it's got a padlock on the front of it. It's about, it's, it's about prayer. It's an unlocked padlock, by the way. If you just do H.B. Charles... Uh, um, he's a really neat guy. I listened to some of his sermons. A uh, black guy out of uh, uh, Jacksonville, Florida. So, uh, yeah. Thank you, Tim. We do need to pick the chairs up. Yeah, get the chairs. I don't uh, know where the. Uh... I know we normally don't in the summertime, but the cart's right outside the door. Thanks.